Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next uh, podcast here at Treknababble. This is Kevin. This is Matthew. And uh, we are getting uh, to the home stretch of Deep Space Nine. We're going to do uh, Penumbra, um, the first of the, I believe, is it nine or ten episode arc that makes up the... Uh... Well... It's ten hours of... It's ten episodes worth of storytelling, I think. Uh, what, yeah, but they call it nine chapters. It. Yeah. And what's interesting is um, they weren't titled with like chapters or numbers, like part one or whatever, in the original airing, though Netflix numbers them that way. It's like Penumbra Part One, Strange Bedfellows Part Three, like they're numerated as a contiguous piece of entertainment, which I find interesting. Hmm. I wonder how much uh, the Netflix people will look at something like Memory Alpha, because, you know, it seems like they're the ones who sort of designate these arcs yeah um i mean on on the memory alpha page like For over the, the introduction literally says in parentheses part one of nine you know uh so i i wonder like presumably when they research their episode uh synopses they come to a site like this they go to the wikis of the various series yeah remember, when uh, when they first uploaded them the ones for next gen had some random terrible ones like they must have been translating them from other languages or not really paying attention because i, re- I remember very clearly the uh description for rascals was uh captain picard and three minor characters are in a shuttle accident it's like <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to call them that to their face dude <laughs> yeah. um yeah so uh we're at the beginning of the final stretch here um you know for me i don't watch Deep Space Nine with regularity. You know, it's something I watch maybe every five plus years. Um, you know, TNG and Voyager uh, and TOS, to a slightly lesser degree, I will just have on in rotation. Uh, I'm in the middle of TNG season three right now, actually. Um, it's been a very important uh, psychological balm for the past week and several months of uh, horror. Um, so, you know, I'm coming in really fresh. You know, like, I'm coming in with the, the little bit of setup work that was done at the beginning of the season, you know, uh, with intimating that Cisco has, uh, you know, some sort of alternate um, lineage uh, and also, you know, they, they did a bit of work with Dukat and his Parath cult. Uh, and now the, the the episode prior to this, you know, oh, God, was it? Inter Arma Sealant? Uh, fuck it. Inter <laughs> uh, uh, Arma Enum Silent Legis. Enum. I always forget Enum. Yeah. <laughs> uh, during times of war, the laws go silent. Um, you know, that was sort of... Like, it's, it's interesting to me that people don't view that as part of this arc, you know, because it sort of, it's a stage setter. Um, but th- those are the sort of things that have set the stage for this for me without having a very strong recollection of how all nine of these parts go. It's like, I know Cisco has some sort of, you know, mystical mommy, and I know that Galducat, you know, now has a real personal stake with the the prophets you know and i know that the romulans are involved in the dominion war and there's there's some tension between romulans klingons and federation okay fine um it just kind of baffles me what the fuck they've been doing with themselves for the past third of a season you know um like, I, I get it, kind of. You want to do character stories. That was sort of the pattern that was established with Michael Piller on TNG and earlier DS9. But I thought they had broken away from that, you know? Really, well, they haven't. I mean, you know? I, I don't mind... The, I mean, the character work they were doing in the middle of the season was in large... Like, like it's only a paper moon, like, a little bit more. It was, like, the fine-grained impact of the war, so that was fine. The other stuff, like Prodigal Daughter, like I said that when we reviewed it, I always felt like they, they needed to do, like Prodigal Daughter and Field of Fire 
because obviously Ezri needs to get episodes to build her character up, but it did kind of pull back from the war in a real meaningful way. And there's just no excuse for Emperor's new cloak. There's just none. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just like, well, I guess we got to do a Mirror Universe episode. No, you don't. <laughs> That's not a thread that we've been begging to be closed. And then they didn't even close it. And it had nothing to do with the story that we're interested in. So, I guess that's a long way of saying it's about fucking time. You know, I'm glad they're at least allocating nine chapters to this. They've made a big story, you know. Um, and I, I just wonder if they have time to really wrap it up at this point. So, maybe we should get started. All right. So, all right, I am queued up. Uh, you ready to go? Yeah, I've got my disc in, and we should all get ready to press play in three, two, one. Press play now. It's a very interesting shot to open it, looking at the captain's iPad, whatever. Uh, I love it. Gigantic battery pack. Yeah, that's it? what I assumed it was. It's it's so quaint what they thought future technology would look like. <laughs> so Cisco wants to put down roots on Major. I like that. And I, I like that they um like they talk explicitly to like, you know, bookend the experience like when cisco got here he wanted to be anywhere else like i like that they that they discuss it it's it's a very it's a very warm scene well and it let me just say this deep space nine has been a very inconsistent journey for me <laughs> you know like they started out with some major themes that they seemed to want to do then they're like yeah these aren't working so they switched you know around season three or four um there's been a lot of bizarre, kind of ineffective filler, if if you'll excuse the phrase. Um, so having a bookend that explicitly mentions some of those big themes, those big character uh, moments and motivations at the beginning of the series is very helpful. Uh, it, it makes the whole thing feel less, you know, sort of haphazard, which I think it really was. You know, yeah. Like I, I mean, I think they settled into a creative team, the dominant creative team, uh, halfway through. You know, your Iris Stephen Bears and your Ron Moores, and right. I mean, like the earlier team was was a much more Michael Pillar um, influenced group, and I love Michael Pillar, and I think he did Gangbusters with TNG, but DS9 was never going to be TNG. You know, and when it was trying to be TNG, it just kind of sucked. Yeah. Okay, anyway. When your mother turns out to be part prophet or part wormhole alien, or whatever it is you want to call her, words like destiny begin to mean something. Is this a little too on the nose? Uh, I think uh, Penny Johnson sells it. She, she. It's a weird conversation to have, but I never doubt her like engagement in the scene uh she's very good at that uh so i i really just like penny johnson a lot i like uh, i remember reading in like tv guide after she gets arrested for uh, the maquis thing that the character was just not coming back and i was so happy when they were wrong i was just uh like i i, I view her like we've talked about this i view her as like the like, like a sh on a short list of non-Starfleet human characters that, by logical inference, must make up the vast majority of the Federation, and yeah. I'm intrigued by what we... And don't get me wrong, I think a lot of it's just the acting. Um, but I, I like this character. She, you know, she has a job, and she has a boyfriend, and she has a life, and, you know, with the... It's also a life that's not centered on Earth. I, I always appreciated that, too, that her, her existence never even comes close to Earth. I, I enjoyed that. Um, so... I suppose maybe I round up a little for some of these scenes just because I have such an affection for, for the character. 
Uh, the Captain Baudet joke. A joke that was old when we first made it. <laughs> I get... They leaned... They made... The, they pulled out this gag like three times in the first season with Jadzia and the guy with the transparent skull. And that must be one of those jokes that, like, in the room, they all just think is the funniest thing. And I've just never, never responded to it. No, I agree. I'm also... It's kind of annoying... When they just don't eventually show it. Yeah. I guess that's the joke. You know, like it's it's a more meta yeah. joke. It's like, here's something that we could never show on TV. It's too expensive or something. So, this episode is sort of setting several disparate threads into motion. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so our one thread is Cisco and his destiny, you know, to become Bajor Jesus or whatever. And now we have this sort of rescue story, right, which is going to involve, you know, some some real highs and lows for the characters. Uh, and I feel like we're being told or it's being implied in this scene that we're going to get some sort of emotional closure on the Dax Wharf thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Do we need it? Um, I, I don't know how many other stories there are to tell for Esri at this point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean... She I just feel like... Ezri sorting out her half feelings for Worf it is not really something we need to do. Like, I feel like they just nod at each other and, like, reach an agreement, and that's it. That's all, yeah, that's like, that's all we need. Yeah, I mean, on some level, I wonder how, how different the show would have been if they had just killed Jadzia... And then not replaced, I, certainly not with another Dax, but just not repla- not re- replaced a ma- the cast member at all. Yeah. Would that have thrown off a balance? Like, it's less of an ensemble show, so I don't know if you really would have even noticed the lack of another main character. It's like on TNG or Voyager, if one of those characters went missing, um, it would throw off the rhythm of a lot of scenes, where here I don't think it would. So I, I'd be curious what that show would have functioned like. What other stories might they have told or what might they have focused on? I agree with you. There are so few scenes where they're all like in a room doing something the way that TNG or Voyager has bridge scenes uh, that DS9 has long been much more. It's like, meanwhile, right in this corner of the universe, these three characters are doing this, you know? So yeah, I could totally see that. So uh, I, one, a friend of a friend of mine is uh, watching Deep Space Nine for the first time, and she has just reached the end of season seven. And she commented that she thought Armin Shimmerman had a much reduced role this season. And looking back, I can't challenge that um, that assessment. No, I think that's pretty right on. Yeah, like he has some great fucking lines in uh, Siege of AR five five eight and uh, a you know good scene or two, and maybe it's only a paper moon. But yeah, he doesn't really have any big arcs and i get that i guess that you know he's he's not really fighting the war but um well they gave him tons to do when the station was occupied you know that's true that's true and so it it just it kind of raises the question what the hell the writers were thinking it's like here's your frank to to my mind number one best actor yeah and that's not an insult to anyone else i mean if armin Armin Shimmerman's the best actor in almost any group of actors I can imagine. Like, <laughs> uh, I'm kind of glad we've gotten over the Quark wants to do it with everything. Yeah, that was always annoying. Well, and the way they got over it was with that horrendous mirror episode. <laughs> the one good thing, I guess. Yeah, that's still not going to make me retroactively no, no. want to increase its rating. Uh, 
I, there, there, there's something about the way she looks that it's more scandalous when she's wearing, you know, like a spaghetti strap nighty. Um, I don't know. She just seems more naked than Terry Farrell ever did. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's because her head is so big. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I, the search for Worf's escape pod always struck me as very, well, of course we're going to find it. He's a main character. Like, can you imagine that if Worf had gotten off the Karaga, that anyone would have gone back to search for like 16 hours for an escape pod they didn't find the first time? You know? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it has just a little bit of that touch of, clearly, they're going to find him. They're only <laughs> looking for him because he's a main character. That Maybe that's what I mean to say. Yeah. So now the Sona are being referenced here. That did make me happy. Insurrection is a mediocre film, but uh, I appreciated the internal reference. You know, those those make me happy. I don't know. I think they were so poorly developed in the movie that referencing them here. Uh, I I take your point, but I'm always I'm happy when they try. Well, yeah, I'm happy they're trying. I agree with Uh, that. Casey Biggs does a really good, like, daytime drunk. Like, there's an undertone of high-functioning alcoholic there that is really awesome to watch. Like, it's just... And he's, like, right at that tipping point where it becomes dysfunctional alcoholism and... Uh, so good. Uh, it's just... I really want to see these two, like, knock out, like, Waiting for Godot or, you know who's afraid of Virginia Woolf or something like I would just love to see these two um in a regular play I think like some small attic theater two man two man cast and that's it oh god that'd be so good (laughs) so they're referencing the uh founder's disease here this this is really good you know (laughs) I love Jeffrey Combs look when he says maybe she's not a god yeah, there's steel under there, and it's like, oof, God, they, like, they hate each other so much, and it's so much fun to watch. Well, and then when he switches to that smarmy smile again, it's, uh, which, it kind of bothers me that they're stuck in this room, you know, with these graphics that don't really do think like i almost like i understand you couldn't build like a cardassian white house to do like west wing in here you know where it's like they're all walking around and there's a hundred people you know maybe that's it there's not enough extras that doesn't feel like a center of power because there's only two people in it yeah where are the other scenarios you know that painting has always bothered me. this painting in the i mean and every time i see it it just leaps out it's like that's clearly not a hallway yeah they tried i guess there's just something about the lighting scheme that totally failed even though it's dark how do you feel about it's like this reminds me of the scene in the simpsons where homer is in the back seat with a uh paper towel roll like doing flashback dialogue to marge to get her to like remember that he loves him yeah it's 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 pretty clunky yeah it's it's the it's the ongoing problem of how do you portray a metaphysical experience physically like well i mean there's a more practical problem how do you portray things that happened with another actress who doesn't want to be on the show anymore right so uh, this, I, okay, I, that picture is, I still have that TV Guide, I believe, uh, in a box somewhere, uh, when, they TV, when TV Guide did a whole, like, spread for, the, for Worf and Dax's wedding, and I believe there was some kerfluffle over whether or not Terry Farrell was compensated or agreed for her likeness to appear in this episode, and that kerfluffle was the reason that she was not in the flashbacks for Worf at the end of What You Leave Behind. Hmm. And I'm going to get this comment out of the way now. I'm just going to like stick it in an envelope and we'll get back to it later. But all I'm going to say is that if you don't have Worf remembering his wife on the station, do not do flashbacks. If there's a technical reason you cannot do a narratively consistent flashback, not that I think you should do flashbacks anyway, but if you can't, don't even bother. Just saying it now. What could she be thinking? 
good question. Sometimes they don't think, they just do. Uh, okay, all right. I guess it's... She, guess she's it's gone... Dax's have gone off half-cocked before. This is, yeah. this is half-cocked. This is not a full plan, I mean. <laughs> all right, I will say, to Nicole DeBoer's credit, she does her quirky, space-sick-having, fish-out-of-water, like a slug-out-of-water, really well. She, that is clearly her wheelhouse. Like... I shouldn't be laughing at her, like, I'm driving into a tunnel act right now, but I am. It's cute. It's charming. And, yeah, I'm buying it. <laughs> this is almost too silly. Like, couldn't she press a button to make interference? Like, slightly detune the radio? Yeah. I mean, I guess that shows that she's not experienced with such things. Um, yeah, so I agree on her acting, the space sickness. Yeah. I just question what the hell space sickness is supposed to be. You know? Is it, like, extra sensitivity? It would have to be straight-up psychosomatic, right? Like, it could... I'm adjustments to inertial dampers, or... I don't know. Yeah. It seems like that's psychosomatic. Anybody can just steal a runabout, can't they? Yeah, the runabouts do have terrible security. I appreciate this attempt at a, like, live Okudagram. It's not great. Like, I don't understand how that would be portraying valuable information for, like, three-dimensional space, but I'll let that complaint go. It's, it's, not, my, it's not my favorite piece of uh, effects work. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. It's interesting animation there too. I will say the Badlands were always well done. Yeah, I've never been opposed to Badland scenes. Um, I mean, it's there's clearly some kind of actual fire being superimposed onto this uh, backdrop, but they they make it seem like a real-ish sort of place. Yeah. And I'm always happy when things that are referenced in one series are then referenced in another series. Yeah. You know, like, these are the Badlands, and people know what these things are. And, you know, so the space sickness setup is paid off now. Now it makes sense. Yeah. You know, like, she's being buffeted on waves. You know, it's like being seasick, right? I will say one thing about the Badlands that kind of bugged me was this feeling that there's two planes of right, it. between which, yeah. These fiery pillars go. Um, it, it's just kind of strange. What is that tool that he was using? Does he have to use Cardassian or Klingon knives? Does he have a 3D printer or are these replicated pieces? Like if you could replicate the pieces, couldn't you just replicate the house according to specifications? Well, I saw the, I saw this as like him doing mock-up work for like does like he is designing in this at this moment. So like okay. it's like Bajoran Lincoln logs or something. Right. That must have been fun to uh, create from a prop perspective. I wonder if they smashed that when they were done with this episode. <laughs> I guess the, the thing about having yeah, open floor plans, man. <laughs> um, I guess the thing about having this be a nine part story is you can let scenes like these breathe a little more. Yeah, like, this is a very, like, th there was a cute way, like, you couldn't even really see it on screen, but she was, like, touching the back of his neck while they were just sitting there. Like, the way, their body language is very... Very comfy. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's unostentatiously intimate. It's not, they are not performing intimacy because that's the scene. It just is. And it's very, it, it's very warm. Like, I, I, 
always bought their relationship to a certain degree is very like lived in and especially on her side very genuine let's get married I kind of like she seems surprised you know it's a very TV thing I've I've spoken to women I've met them in my life um, uh, we have we've had conversations about a wide range of topics and the consensus from the women I've met is um, wedding proposals shouldn't be a surprise. Like maybe the exact, you know, time, place, setup, what have you. But the idea that your relationship is headed toward marriage should feel fairly unambiguous before the proposal. Yeah, it should be established. <laughs> and if you're trying to play it that cool beforehand, they should like want to break up with you. Yeah. And if it's really a shock, they should be pissed off. So, anyway, I, I wanted more. Why haven't they gotten married? Is this a thing? Who gets married in this world, right? What What's the, what's the rate of cohabitation without marriage? <laughs> you know, like 80%, 90%. You know, do people have five, ten-year relationships and then move on? You know, do they only get married if there are kids involved? Like, why does anybody get uh, married? If, yeah, if you if if you're presumably going to live healthily and actively to 120, I mean, certain presumptions we make about. I mean, gray divorce is a thing now. Um, people people no longer wait for the other one to die. Um, I will. I, I jumping topics. I like the effect of tractoring the escape pod. I thought that was that was well done. Why is his hair disheveled? Hasn't he had just a ton of time to keep it all tight? <laughs> yes, that that's all he did. He brushed it a hundred times. <laughs> that's all he had to do in the escape pod. I find the sigil of Martok to be kind of irritating. Is it just because it's unusual and you uh, like had like you just preferred the earlier Baldricks? Yeah, it's. I'm, I guess I'm just so used to it. It seems like such a departure. Of course. <laughs> Maybe okay. I hmm. uh, thoughts and feelings. I I. I like that the writers are dealing with what I think are some fairly straightforward issues that would be obvious to two real sentient beings in this situation. Yeah. Like, it would be weird for your quasi-reincarnated spouse to, you know, come give you a ride. All over that. I suppose my eventual problem with where they take it is that I don't think the actors have really any sexual chemistry. And it makes what happens later weird. Yeah, I mean, I take it that the reason they got the two together in the first place was because Terry Farrell and Michael Dorn, you know, cut a good image on a screen together and they had good, you know, chemistry. Yeah, and height-wise they worked. That's very important in television. You have to... <laughs> They well, have to be able to frame you right. <laughs> the height thing actually gives it a sort of weird feeling, you know, like she's a child or something. Yeah, yeah. The makeup work on the founder. What do you think? Uh, it's I, I, I. They're going clearly going for a riff on Odo's like leathery makeup from Die's cast uh, when he was being artificially constrained from. Uh, shape-shifting I, I will say uh uh salome jens just has a great fucking voice i just have them have them document their work and eliminate them you have no idea how many times <laughs> in my professional life i've really wished i could do that <laughs> 
the work they did on her mouth is really interesting. And it, I think that's anybody who's had a, like a really bad cold. Oh yeah. Yeah. For a long period of time knows that sort of parched feeling that you get. Yeah. When you're so like coked up on cold medicine, you know, and you've just blown, you know, all the moisture in your body out through your nose and you just, you feel like, you know, you're going to crinkle up and it's like, it really looks like that. Yeah. Here's a piece of my face. Um, the, the effect on the goo was not great, but uh, Jeffrey Combs' face should have won an Emmy. Yeah, the acting. Like, the, the, the disgust, concern, like, is so good. And reverence. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's, he's shocked. Yeah. You know, that he could have a piece of his God. Okay, I like the path they went... Like, uh, you know, we, we've commented positively on the Cisco's father-son relationship being very authentic in the past. My only issue vis-a-vis -vis Cassidy, and I appreciate going, like, the cliche is that, you know, he views his father moving on as a betrayal of his mother, and they didn't do that, and I'm glad that's, you know, somewhat trite. Yeah. I always thought Jake was just a little over-invested in this relationship. Just a little too eager for it to happen. Just it just hit a weird tone for me. Well... Maybe in the future, you know, parents talk a lot more about sex or something. I don't know. But yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine actually having a conversation like this with one of my parents. Yeah. Like her comedy chops are good. Like her, her, I'm bored. I'm bored. I'm bored. Face is good. Like she does all that. Like the the, the joke. I don't know if you recall this at the time was uh, referring to the character's Allie McTrill. Oh yeah, I can see that. Yeah, no, and it it is it is very in that vein. I mean, on some level, I almost wish they had hired her for any other some character they made out of whole cloth. Yeah. It just Esri feels like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too where it's like we wanted the emotional shock of killing Jadzia but we still don't want to get rid of a character with such an otherwise interesting background. And in which case you should have just not killed Jadzia. Honestly. Like I first they shouldn't just I just it was not my favorite episode. And if you want to replace the cast member if only for, you know, Bechdel test purposes and uh, not losing uh, one of your th you know three women in your cast uh, no two women two yeah um, I think I w no continue I was just saying uh, like I just wish they had given her a cleaner slate I, I think mooring her character to Worf I and I, it's you know, it's like I enjoyed all her early scenes with Cisco in that opening arc. It was fun watching them feel each other out, and I think they actually did a really good job of yeah. this. Like, we acknowledge the weirdness of our relationship as a facet of our relationship, and we both have done this before, so it's not weird for us. And maybe that could have been a source of better drama, like r rather than just you know. A, a little half speech from Cisco on the subject. Like what if Cisco and Worf really dug in and been like, how can you relate to her so intimately when I can't that could, maybe that could have been an episode that would have had some like, like rather than his petulant, weirdly abusive jealousy of Bashir, maybe he could have been weirdly adult jealous of Cisco because Cisco is able to access that relationship in a way that, for both practical and emotional reasons, is foreclosed to him. That would have been a fun argument to have. Well, so I have two things to say. Uh, first of all, I think she should have been nailing Bashir at this point. Yeah. Which would have been a much better source of drama. Yeah. Um, but second of all, I think what bothers me about this is that they're writing her as if there's basically nothing different. Like, the only thing different is her body. You know, all these other hosts, she's got much more fragmentary memories of, it seems like. You know, but she remembers, like, 
individual arguments they had and songs that he liked. And it's just, it's like too much. Do you agree with me? I mean, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, they, they painted her host personality as kind of wishy-washy and young and inexperienced, like, you know, green to the gills. And so, and, and, and again, maybe they could have done a little bit more with that where she, because of the nature of her joining, um, you know, uh, she was just in a position to be overwhelmed by her previous hosts. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like if you're going to really write that story in an interesting way, given all the same information, but a different host personality, maybe she approaches things differently. You know, maybe she either, you know, pushes fights further or gives in on fights, you know, that he and Jadzia would have had, you know, um, you know, you haven't seen it yet, Kevin, but one of the things I really like about eternal sunshine of the spotless mind is that even if you take away the information, the basic personalities of the characters are the same. And so they basically go through the same, uh, you know, emotions yeah. with each other even absent the information that's been taken from them. You know, here it's the reverse, you know, that it's like the information is there, but it's different people, you know? And so show us how things would go differently. Yeah. Yeah. Also, this thing annoyed the hell out of me that no one grabbed a comm unit. Like, first of all, what's in the bags? What's in the bags? If not a comm unit, what else? I mean, other than food would be in the bags Two. These are Starfleet officers. We have assumed they've gone through military training. I'm sure there's some protocol for who takes what based on rank or whatever. Like, somewhat, like th they had to know that that, it, it just, that just felt cheap. Yeah. It's a I agree. tiny complaint, but it's there. Um, it's also way too dark. I mean, for on the one hand, I appreciate that it's dark and there's not this, like, mysterious source of light that's just lighting everything. But, eh. I do okay. appreciate that they light things. Yeah, I like I like Cassidy's line. My mother would be would prefer her daughter be married by a minister, but an admiral is the next best thing. I I'm intrigued, uh, but I'm glad they didn't dig in further into what Federation religious life is because if nothing organically in a conversation, Cisco is not going to stop this conversation to give ex, you know exposition on uh, religion in Federation societies. But it it grabbed my ear. Yeah, it was an interesting touch. You know, it is coming soon after um, soon after Cisco talking about his people. Yeah. And bada bang, bada bang. I like what they were going for with this scene. I, I mean, I get it. There's some obvious story utility here. Um, but like, so 50 Deus Bears, it was just, it's just, I don't know, it's, um, it feel it it's so artificial you know like it was it they invented a bajoran wedding custom just to be cumbersome <laughs> and that's annoying that that's just inorganic to me a little bit you know it's been a while since he's been the emissary and every time it happens, like, they get the extras and they get them all decked out in Bajoran stuff. And, you know, I, I'm kind of feeling it when that's the case. By the way, this is really nice mat work. It's the best Cardassia has looked. Yeah. Uh, there's still no people, but whatever. Um, I just... Why is the Emissary so important to Bajorans? You know, I feel like a little more should have been done to indicate why. Um, yeah, yeah. It's they, not, make it, they make it seem like an institution that's been around, but really, he's a newcomer, right? And it's like, and it's not it's like never been an emissary before. So, why do they care so much? Like, why isn't he seen as a, an interloper? Or right. It's, it's not like they can't access. I guess he did find the temple. So, eh, I mean, they. This has been my complaint generally about the whole emissary arc was it's clear they didn't have the end game in mind when they started it. And for such a series spanning thing, they should have had something sketched out in the back of a cocktail napkin so that the story would 
really evolve. So Descartes is not his red thing. <laughs> yeah, this is this is post waltz, post uh, covenant. Yep, he's pretty nuts. No, but he's not his uh, red earring. Oh yeah, he ripped that off of his ear. But he's still a devotee of the Paris, I guess. This is one of those scenes that um, is carried by the actors. Like, <laughs> now Damar didn't drink at that time. It's a good thing there are so many Class M jungle planets. Yeah. With wild boars or whatever. Like, I okay, I don't mind that this is the hill they chose to die on in terms of giving her a personality, but it, is there anything else they've established that she's a vegetarian? Or maybe, there, I guess there could be some, like, Federation ethos that replicated meat is fine because it doesn't involve hard, like uh, I don't know just I want to know why he's letting his hair hang out like that wouldn't that like catch on leaves and yeah. help more hear him yeah like it's just clear they're trying to Fabio him up you know right and they're also like everything in this conversation feels like it feels designed to set up an argument rather than an argument happened organically it just like uh yeah i just I'm really going to be jealous of jezia i yeah it seems clear because they had their little touching face thing earlier that this is all, you know, sort of like the tension before the explosion. And it's a little anticlimactic, I guess. And now they're going back to Baudet. Also, also, this just makes Worf look like a jerk again. Yeah. Like, you're jealous of men your wife dated before you met. Like, that creeps you, do that. Well, but you're jealous of... Women your wife dated before you met in the person of this, you know, like new host who also has dated, you know, like a dozen other people in her, you know, right. romantic it's just, ugh. yeah. I, I like that she kind of turns the screws on him. Yeah. Yeah, that's where he goes too far. Yeah. Also, this is one of those other tropes of TV movies that I don't think is true in real life. Not everyone having an argument wants to bang. Yeah. <laughs> I've, if I were to like just get out an Excel spreadsheet and chart most of the arguments I've had, very few of them have led to sex. I mean, a statistically meaningless amount when you get right down to it. But it's like it, it, it's like one of those it's it's just we've inherited it from much more schlocky melodrama, not interested in fine grained character work that the characters who are shouting at each other are going to kiss. And it's like they secretly love each right, other. And that also just lets men get away with a lot of jerky behavior. You know, it's like I'm yelling at you because I can't express my feelings. Well, grow up and figure it out, you know, <laughs> just logistically speaking, did they just like slightly lower their pants right they got fully they took okay one of one of the tv tropes that has always been hilarious to me is a woman who after immediately after having sex pulls her bed sheet up to her clavicle I'm like i can't believe that's that's how women, i've i admit i have no direct experience with that but i believe i can't believe that's how that works i'll accept that people want they're cold they don't like to let it all hang out, and that's them. But I refuse to believe people tuck in their shirts after sex. I refuse outright to believe that. <laughs> okay, 
Uh, just a costuming question. Is that all Michael Dorn, or is he wearing like a like a bulletproof vest or something uh, under that? Mm. You know, he's lost weight in the last 10 years or yeah. so. But I'm pretty sure that's all Dorn there. I don't think he's wearing uh, shoulder pads. Okay, because I just remember I remember a behind-the-scene thing in, uh, I want to say, Nemesis, where the, he was wearing like a like a pad of some kind uh, over his chest and the Starfleet uniform was on top of that. But yeah, okay, I could see that's him, yeah. Well, uh, it's not as bad as Wesley's if he is wearing one. You know, I I waited for a taxi with Dorn um, right around the time of first contact. Talked to him for a little bit. And he he looked to me like he should look without a Klingon face. Okay. By which I mean he seemed to have the same sort of body type yeah. as what I remember seeing in the movie and on television. So, like, I feel like that's probably mostly him. Okay. I would say I like the Breen ship design. It does suffer a little bit of that 90s CGI texturing that doesn't quite look real. But yeah. I like the layout. I like a ship that doesn't appear consciously designed to be symmetrical or aerodynamic, which obviously a ship would not have to be in space. I love that. I I love this scene uh with uh Duka. oh god the, the look of relief on his face so good so well acted <laughs> well and also the cutting nature of the remark too i remember being like delightfully shocked when i saw this um mark Ale- mark alimo is a craggy man he That is that like the only makeup on him is the nose. Like that is otherwise uh, that uh, that is just him. Um, it's so weird. It's so weird. I can't even see him in other stuff he's in. Like when he's like the um, the card shark in uh, Times Arrow, where it's yeah. like his voice is so recognizable. I can't not see him in the makeup. It's jarring. <laughs> it's definitely jarring. Is there really nothing to do but wait? Oh, boy. Yeah, well, we've never... I'm trying to recall a single... Out, maybe outside of the Emissary, which at least had some, like, internal dramatic heft and some connection. Like, I have never enjoyed these prophet scenes. Have they been calling him the Cisco before this point? I believe so. Because I hate that. <laughs> I, I just, I loathe it as a storytelling device. I, I just, like, it's his dad's family name. Do the Bajoran, Bajoran prophets really call someone the Cisco? I, it's, I don't know. Sarah Cisco was my mother, not you. Well, I mean, they're making things really explicit now. Yeah, yeah. This is, in fact, one of the most explicit prophet visions <laughs> there have ever been. Right, there's some ex- there's actual exposition happening here. It's very tough to take an emotional message from this. Yeah, I agree. Also, the prophets exist outside linear time. He had to explain choice to them. It seems weird that they would intervene to be like, don't marry her. Like, 
hasn't he already married her? Isn't he like currently marrying her? Did marry her? Like, I just it, it's also just so artificial. Like it, it doesn't. They never really resolve. Did they even make it clear why they're uh, saying don't marry her? It's like a bit no, of a bit of a spoiler alert, but I don't think they do. I mean, I guess we can take it that they know how it's going to turn out, but they have to play a role in how it turns out. So it's just like the prophets say, okay, this is the time when you, the Cisco's sort of mom, appears to the Cisco to get him to do what we know he's going to do or not do. <laughs> um, yeah. To, to the benefit of the episode, it's only like one minute. Yeah. And it's at the end. You know? So it doesn't drag down the pacing. It's just the fact that they ended on a sharp cut is to the benefit of the scene. Um, and to the extent that they delivered very straightforward dialogue, I think that's to the benefit of the scene, too. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't, yeah. we always hate profit scenes. There's a good reason. The stupid heartbeat thing might be one of the worst aspects of it. Um, it just pulls you out so much. Uh, and then the lighting and the, they didn't do as much of the weird, you know, sort of fuzzy close up kind of things. Um, okay. So how do we rate this episode? I mean, it. It's got so many balls in the air. Right, so this is something I've been thinking about, and we've talked about it before for, um, like, uh, what was it? There was some other, like, oh, the opening arc of season six. Yeah. Where it wasn't accidental. They didn't, like, forget to write a story and then tie together. They set out to tell a multi-episode arc, and so our, our, our scoring rubric does not allow for, like, a arc contribution arc success score analysis directly um i did not know at the time that it was going to be like a straight up um nine episodes worth of stories i figured um i mean i or maybe i suspected given that they'd done it with the opening of season six but when they say things like and now the continuation like the little short hairs on my arm stand up i'm like ooh, this is exciting i'm very excited for this um And you know, and I, and I I'm try, if I recall the commercials correctly, this is when they started doing the like and eight episodes left of Deep Space Nine. Like they started like <laughs> flogging the forthcoming finale. So maybe I kind of would have pieced together that there was something longer term going on. I don't mind it. Like I I was sufficiently intrigued by um, whatever the hell Ducat was going to do, and um, uh like what's going on with the breen what's going like i there was enough there to make me be like wow what 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 are they doing um that i, I liked all that i think there's basically three main threads in this episode and that's the ducat thread the cisco thread and the wharf dax thread okay and two of those three threads really work and it's the wharf dax stuff that feels a bit tacked on um, and weird. Uh, but yeah, I, knowing where it's going, I have criticisms of the Cisco arc. But as scenes in this episode, his stuff with Cassidy was good, and then the sort of shock you know, to the system at the end here, which they, you know, they set up the shock by showing us, having them be together and being so obviously suited to each other and then you know throwing this wrench into it i i think that really works yeah you know and the you know ducat stuff maybe more so on the strength of the actors uh works you know and you've got the founder thread and all that stuff so two-thirds of this episode works pretty well and has me excited about where those threads are going to go yeah if i saw no more of dax and Worf. I would not care, you know, 
it's just like okay fine you did it okay like i don't feel invested okay i didn't feel completely invested in jadzia dax and wharf but because of the actor's chemistry like i cared if she was going to die on that jungle planet and if Worf was going to feel guilty for the rest of his life and et cetera, et cetera. Right here. It's just like, ugh, it's just like such a retread and like, I, I feel almost certain it's going to end with them agreeing to forget what happened. <laughs> you know, it's like, we can't go on with this. So, you know, it's like we, we got it out of our systems and that's it. Um, that's at least how it feels to me right now. Um, and it, it's weird, and it's creepy, and it, it brings back my least favorite aspect of DS9 War. Yeah. With yeah. creepy, possessive shithead. Yeah, oh, God. He's mad at her for... He's mad at this person, who is not his wife, having lunch with someone who his wife did sleep with before they met. Like, that is, like, eight levels of possessive creepy. Yeah. At, by far, the worst worst aspect of what anybody in any series did with Worf. Uh, I mean, that's almost like, uh, what's the name of the episode? Uh, what he was without sin level. Yeah. You know, shit, shithead Worf stuff. So that is to this episode's detriment. I guess another question I have for the writing of this episode is, was anything really particularly exciting? Um, like, I wasn't thrilled by Esri's, you know, moving through the Badlands, and I, I never wondered whether she would find Worf or not, like, if he was going to be dead. Um, certainly, Cisco proposing marriage to Cassidy was not exciting in the traditional sense of the word. Um, you know, they were nice scenes. They were pleasant, but it wasn't thrilling. Like, the most thrilling stuff here was, like, Wei-Yoon and Damar jousting kind of stuff, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I mean, I, I found the, the reveal of Dukat as Bajoran, like, what's happening? What could he be doing? Oh, my God. Um, and just the shock value of seeing Mark Alimo out of makeup. Yeah. Um, but overall, I feel like this was a lot of setup and yeah, not much. Yeah, which, which, and this, this is the thing I'm trying to be aware of. It's not like they wrote a boring episode that was meant to be a single episode and then fixed it later. They wrote an episode that was meant to be set up. Like, yeah. So, in the same way that you wouldn't, you know, like bag on Empire Strikes Back for it's not resolving, not not having an ending. Movie doesn't have an ending. Yeah. <laughs> it, but that's not really, you know, the fault of the movie. Um, so, like, I, I liked two thirds of this quite a bit. It's not super exciting because they're not at that part of the story yet. Yeah. And it has no resolution because, of course, they're, they're not at the end yet. Um, you know, so, I mean, yeah, I, we can try to judge it on how good the setup is. Um, it's pretty good. Yeah. They probably could have gone a teeny bit further with both of the working story angles, you know, to give us a bit more. But, you know, we'll get there very soon. Um, you know, the credits, I think they, uh, it had Salome Jens. I thought it had Kai Wynn's actress too in the mm. credits, but I guess it didn't. Um, I remember when the credits were on screen thinking, boy, these credits are really telling us who we're going to see in this episode. <laughs> um, which I, you know, I suppose you can't ever really get away from that, but, um, yeah, I mean, so I, I think the writing was competent. And I think there were two or three really crackling scenes and for the most part a bunch of setup. Yeah, um, acting I think was good. Um, I re I, I've i said it before, I love, I love Penny Johnson, uh, Casey Biggs and Jeffrey Combs did a great job, Salome Jens did a great job. Um, I liked Cisco pitched his enthusiasm at several points in a pleasantly low key way. And that's not something we've always been able to say about him. Yeah. <laughs> in, in some ways it was almost too low key though. <laughs> Cause there's no making us happy. <laughs> well, it's it just, he's, 
he was like so soft voiced it it almost threatened to put me to sleep in a way you know it, it was very very sleepy and i was like oh man i almost feel like there's a profit vision coming on you know he's like too happy um but i i agree that avery brooks did not do anything that pulled me out of the episode i just don't feel like he did anything that really wowed me um Marco Limo was good. So, Nicole DeBoer and Michael Dorn. Uh, I don't think they have chemistry, but I don't think that's from lack of trying. Like, they're they're doing the... They're, they're acting what's on the page. I mean... They might have chemistry if they had had two seasons together under their belts already. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you that. It's like the actors don't feel... The connection between the characters yeah. that they're being told that they have. Yes. Yeah. And so, like, what is chemistry? You know, like that's a good question. If you've ever seen Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, there's chemistry. And you know, they were fucking off screen, so you know, there's that. Um, but there, there's like palpable you know, electricity between the actors, you know, but that's also supposed to be there in the story. Right. You know, here it's like, I agree. The actors don't have natural chemistry, but I feel like if there had been nine or 10 scenes prior to this in other episodes of the season in which they'd try to develop it at all. Yeah. Then they might have more so far. We've only had one, I can only think of one scene prior to this episode in which Worf is being a dickhead, you know, to Esri, uh, because he saw her, like, holding hands with Julian. Yeah. So, if we can accept that the actors just don't have that natural explosive chemistry, we can also fault the writers for not giving them the opportunity to at least build acted chemistry yeah yeah because i agree they have none um and yeah then just the nature of the their argument was just so stupid it was, it was like it was so out of some 50s movie like i'm being a jerk to you because i like you and i i after someone pointed out how terrible story beauty and the beast is to me i've never been able to go back like men should not communicate their affection by being jerks that is just that should just not be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> not past first grade anyway, um, and even not in first grade. Yeah, yeah. So I, I feel comfortable, you know, calling that aspect of the story and generally the acting to be a failure. Um, production value wise, um, you was, know, it was not a bottle I, show. Yeah, the Badlands scenes were okay. I liked the Cardassia mat. Um, you I know, like, the I makeup like, on Salome Jones was adequate. I like the I like the brain ship. Uh, I was I was intrigued. I, I am continually annoyed by the cramped nature of the Cardassia set. Yeah, yeah. Like I feel like if you're gonna go out, you know, just build us another room. And hire four or five extras, you know, yeah. make it seem more real. It, it's getting old. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you that. Um, what else was there? Uh, I think that's about it. Uh, so I think this is a solid three. Like, uh, like, and that sounds like because we we've been critiquing some stuff, but as as setup goes, I want to watch next week. I might watch next. No, it's one AM here. I might I'm going right to bed. But if it if it weren't one AM, I might watch the next part right now. Like it's I wanna know what happens, even though I know what happens. Um I can Yeah, you know if you had cut out the Jed sorry, the Esri Wharf stuff, um, I might be like totally on a four with this. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like that does drag it down to a degree. Yeah. I think um, that's that's accurate to say. So, uh, yeah, like it's not a five. It was never going to be a five because it's the opening salvo. It's it's an opening chapter. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't deliver enough 
to be a five. But I feel like setup can be a four. But only two of the three things that were set up were good. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with the three. Were you going to say something else? No, no, it's about it. Yeah, where it's, uh, yeah, it's about it. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not turned off by. I'll put it this way: despite the fact that nothing really got resolved this episode, I wasn't bored or annoyed. So that oh. that, that says something. Yeah, and I, I don't demand that every episode be self-contained. I don't demand that it be, um, you know, a standalone story. It doesn't have to be. Uh, and I hope we're not judging it because it's not the self-contained gem that a City on the Edge of Forever or Yesterday's Enterprise is, you know. And many of those episodes, we wanted more, and we wished it would have been a two-parter or a three-parter. Um, so I, to me, I think the three here is simply because one part of it didn't work. You know, it yeah. would have been a four otherwise. Yeah. Could you have a five? Yeah, so maybe Empire Strikes Back is, you know, to jump franchises here, is the perfect example of an incomplete story that is still a five. You know, because it's so satisfying, even with open threads left. Mm. You know? Like it develops characters and creates scenes and, you know, creates sort of indelible memories uh, in such a way. Like that that didn't happen here, you know? There was no scene in this episode where you're just like, oh my god, you know, I'll remember that forever. You know? Yeah, no, I get I get what you're saying. Whereas in Empire Strikes Back, you've got your you know, your carbon freezing and you've got your your duel between Skywalker and Darth Vader and you know, you've got your uh, lifting the X-Wing out of the swamp kind of stuff. You know, it's like, those are indelible scenes, you know? And so an episode that does not finish can still have indelible scenes. And this doesn't, you know? It's got a prophet scene, blech. It's got Worf being a dickhead, blech. And it's got some nice, charming scenes with Cisco and Cassidy. And it's got some fun but ultimately not really resolving anything, uh, sparring scenes with our Cardassians, basically. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah, like that sounds pretty much like right in the fat part of the bell curve, you know, decent. Yeah. Good even. Yeah, no, yeah, like, given the amount of critiquing we're kind of doing now and preemptively for the rest of this arc, it seems like we might be ragging on it more than... I, like, I enjoy this episode. The three is not like, uh, it's just a three. The th uh, average Star Trek is excellent television. Yeah, I like threes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we do not grade inflate here. <laughs> All right, so that's, that's a total of a six for Penumbra, uh, part one of the nine-part finale to Deep Space Nine. Um, we'll be back soon, uh, assuming the Republic stands. Uh, we'll be back uh, relatively soon to do the next part. And uh, that's, I think that's it. So uh, have a good night, everyone. Yep. Keep watching the skies.